Well, this uh, morning our, our readings from Ecclesiastes are from a couple places, from the end of chapter 3 and then also from the beginning of chapter 9. Hear God's word to us. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter, for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of men and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And now in chapter 9, But all this I laid in my heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to the him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, and so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and the madness in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For the living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward, for no memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat, eat your bread and with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has approved already of what you do. Let your garments be white, and let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife of whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you are going. Again, I saw that the, under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, these are hard and difficult words for us to hear um, about the reality of death. They strike us as very grim and pessimistic 
and perhaps even unbiblical. And yet, Lord, we know that what the preacher says here, what the teacher says is true, that death comes to all. Lord, as we reflect on death, on our own deaths, um, give us a vision and a picture of how you yourself confronted death and how you call us to live in the light of our own deaths. Wherever we find ourselves, perhaps many in this season are, are gripped by fear of death, who are afraid of dying, Lord, give strength and hope and courage of the cross. So meet us, Lord, we pray in your word this morning, in the name of Jesus, amen. I am inevitable. Those are the words of the arch-villain Thanos from the last Avengers movie, Avengers Endgame, which is, that's right, I'm going lowbrow this morning. <laughs> last week, <laughs> last week, you know, you had Abraham Lincoln and you, you, you have Augustine and, you know, sometimes, you know, to hit the needs, cultural needs of the whole congregation. Um, Thanos says, I am inevitable. Um, in the previous movie to um, where he says this, in the movie Avengers Infinity War, uh, Thanos was able to gain possession of all of the Infinity Stones and to create the ultimate weapon of death, by which all he has to do is snap his fingers and um, he's able to kill, and he does kill, um, half of the population of Earth. Billions and billions of people and animal life with a snap of his finger. And that's how, um, that's how that movie ends, Infinity War. All the, the Avengers are gathered in, in the battlefields of Wakanda going to battle against Thanos. And then Thanos finally gets the last Infinity Stone as he pulls it out of Vision's head and he snaps his finger. And you just watch all of the battles were just all these Avengers that you know well, like Spider-Man and Falcon and Vision, they just turn to dust. They just go into dust. And I remember seeing this and um, just being somewhat shocked that this is the way that that film ends. Because, you know, with superhero movies, you know, you might take some losses along the way. A few people might die. But usually in the end, good triumphs over evil. Um, but... In this case, good doesn't triumph over evil. In fact, what you're left with is mass death. And so in the next movie, Avengers Endgame, the Avengers finally track Thanos down in a hut in a far-flung part of the galaxy, living by himself. And they confront him and tell him that he needs to undo what he did. But then he tells them, well, I destroyed the Infinity Stones with the Infinity Stones. And then he says, I am inevitable. I am inevitable. Thanos is inevitable. Thanos, of course, represents death. The name Thanos is very close to the Greek word for death, Thanatos. Thanatos is inevitable. We don't often watch superhero movies looking for deep insights into the human soul, but I think actually the last two Avengers movies in particular offer a rather rather insightful reflection on the problem and the meaning of death. 
Thanos is the ultimate villain. He represents the greatest and most formidable enemy that human race has, and it's death. Death is our enemy, and death taunts us like Thanos and says to us, I am inevitable. There was a book published in 1973 by a psychologist named Ernst, named Ernst Becker called The Denial of Death. And it's a book that was a bestseller during that time and actually gained a lot of popular culture kind of cachet. It shows up in Woody Allen's film, Annie Hall. Uh, Woody Allen's character, who is this neurotic guy named Alvi, is seen reading The Denial of Death, which is kind of perfect for his, his character. But in that book, The Denial of Death, um, Becker makes an argument that all human civilizations, all cultures, develop elaborate mechanisms, defense mechanisms, to shield people and protect them from the knowledge of their own death. Culture, he argues, is built around the denial of death. Death and mortality are just too much for us to take and to look at honestly. And so what we do is we develop these different defense mechanisms. And he, Becker calls them, um, one of the ways, he, he talks about them as um, um, hero systems. Through heroism, and he doesn't mean just superheroes and like warriors and things like that, but every culture develops a, a, what he calls a hero system to confront mortality. Um, and, and a hero system is a symbolic set of beliefs, a symbolic sense of the self that is able to be superior to and transcend the reality of our physical selves, which will die. And when you subscribe to a hero system, or he calls them, what I, I really like this phrase, an immortality project, an immortality project. When you subscribe to these, they, they allow you to live with a sense um, of significance and meaning and purpose beyond death or in the face of death. Hero systems and immortality projects help us confront the reality of death. And in, and in Becker's terms, in many ways, they are a denial of death. And if you look at the Avengers movies in particular, and actually our culture's obsession with superheroes, um, and in many ways, what he argues is manifest and illustrated. And in the last Avengers movie, um, what they're all doing is they're trying to turn back time itself in order to save people who have died and they're trying to kill death itself. And what is, I think, admirable about the movies is they come up with rather mixed results. They cannot stop the inevitability of death. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book that seeks to deconstruct our various immortality projects. It's a book that seeks to demystify our hero systems. In a secular age, we have developed a lot of non-religious uh, immortality projects, gaining wealth, experiencing adventure and pleasure, getting education, great feats of personal accomplishment and achievement, making a difference in the world, fighting for justice and different justice causes. By throwing ourselves into these different projects and endeavors, what we're trying to do is keep the reality of death at bay to stave it off. And what the preacher says, and he systematically goes through all of these in one way or another, his conclusion at the end is that they're hevel, they're vanity, they're mist, 
They're smoke and mirrors. They're here for a little while, but then they vanish like the fog. At the end of the day, everything turns to dust. Death has the final word. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and the man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All are from the dust, and the dust shall return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Of all the radical statements in the book of Ecclesiastes, perhaps this one and the ones about death are the ones that we feel the most contradiction, the ones we feel like are the most out of line with the rest of the scriptures. The teacher doesn't seem to have much of a concept of the afterlife. His perspective seems to be um, that when you die, you're dead. That's it. It's all over. Curtains closed. And he doesn't hold forth a lot of hope in the face of death. Now, the Bible never avoids the topic of death anywhere, but the book of Ecclesiastes is unique as a book because it is perhaps the most sustained reflection on the experience of death in and of itself. Death permeates the whole book of Ecclesiastes, and, and the preacher's whole category of vanity, of hevel, is really based on the reality of death. It's death that makes everything so fleeting. It's death that turns things to the mist that disappear. And for sure, the preacher doesn't have the full picture here. He is not, this is not, he doesn't have the full story of what the Bible says. And it would be very easy, though, for us as Christians to discount what the teacher has to say here about death by moving too quickly to talk about eternal life and resurrection and hope of heaven. But I think this is a mistake. What the preacher says here is not the full story. It's not the last truth about death, but it is not false. What he says here is not false. We do have the hope of resurrection and eternal life with God and heaven, but this hope does not mean that we escape the reality of death. None of us will escape the reality of death. All of us will die. And Christian hope, properly understood, is not the denial of death. It's not a form of escapism. We don't get to opt out. Christian hope, in fact, equips us with the moral courage to look the reality of death in the eyes. But it doesn't spare us the reality. And when we're unwilling to consider the full reality of death, what the preacher says here, we actually then have difficulty finding real comfort in the hope of resurrection itself. I would remind you again of what I've quoted George Bernanos, which I think is a helpful key to this whole book, where he says, in order to be prepared to hope and what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that does not, de that does not deceive. That, that does deceive, sorry. The teacher wants us to be honest about death, and he wants, a, he wants to unmask, demystify the various immortality projects that we have given ourselves to, which are really false ways 
of trying to deal with the problem of death. Instead of living our life in denial of death, the teacher wants us to live in the light of death. To live in the light of death is to live backwards. To use the phrase from the book uh, that some of you are reading on Ecclesiastes by David Gibson, it's a lovely phrase that I think nicely captures what the book is about. Living life backwards. How ought we to live in the light of the fact that someday we will die? See, the, the natural instinct of the human creature is, is to deny death, to flee in the opposite direction. We don't want to contemplate our death. And as we live our lives and we make plans, rarely do we think about the fact that we will die. Even as we grow older, often the assumption, we, our assumption is that we'll continue living. And death is just that thing up there we don't want to think about that might come to us. But according to the teacher, living life backwards is what it means to live wisely. To live wisely in the world is to live life backwards. And it's possible, I, I think, to think that when we talk a lot about death or we take death seriously, that means we become morbid and pessimistic. But what you find for the teacher is quite the opposite. Confronting the reality of death and the experience of joy go hand in hand. Seriousness about death is a passageway to joy. Um, look at chapter 3, verse 20. All go to the one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. See this in the same in chapter 9. He's talking about the injustice of death, that it's this great equalizer. And then he goes on. Go, eat your bread with joy, Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. I say this each week, but I, I want to keep saying it. Remember that the book of Ecclesiastes is deep down a book about joy. The teacher's major premise about joy is this, is that when we learn to live as creatures, when we learn to live within our limits as creatures, we have access to joy. The reality of death is the ultimate expression of our creatureliness. And when we live in the denial of death, what we're doing is we're living in the denial of the fact that we are creatures. And we are prone to forget this. And what happens when we do that is we live with godlike ambition, as if death won't touch us. So the teacher wants to remind us, and he says that things like suffering and injustices in the world are God's way of testing us, God's way of reminding us that we are mere creatures. Uh, look at verse 19 of chapter 3. He says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. So you cannot learn what it means to live as a creature unless you take death into account. So what does the teacher want us to learn about death? How does reflecting on death uh, teach us to live wisely and joyfully in the world? Um, there's a lot that the teacher wants to 
instruct us about death, but there are four, four things that I just want to highlight that he, that he says about death. The first one is that death is certain. <laughs> death is certain. I've already, we've already been talking about this. There is a 100% probability that you will die. A 100% probability that you will die. If there is one truth that, that is um, everybody, every human being agrees on, or at least, <laughs> it is death and that we will die. It is beyond question. So that's the first thing he wants us to know, that death is certain. But the second, the second piece he wants us to know is that death is unpredictable. See, the certainty of death perhaps wouldn't be so hard if, we, if it weren't so unpredictable. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance. Time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like the fish that are taken in a net, like the birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at the evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. That's death. See, at least if we knew when we would die, perhaps we could make some plans, perhaps that we could, you know, um, do that, but nobody knows their appointed time when they will die. And so in this sense, we're no better off than birds or fish that are, one day are just kind of flying along or swimming along like everything's normal, and then all of a sudden, you just get hauled up into a net and then over. This is deeply unnerving. So death is certain and death is unpredictable, but death also nullifies. It nullifies or it cancels out, it erases. And what cancels out and erases is all of our toil. Toil for the preacher is his word for the business of living. He asks again and again throughout the whole book, what does a man gain from all his toil? What advantage does he come? What profit does he accrue? What surplus? The, the preacher often talks about life in these economic terms, in terms of that we, we live our lives toiling in our career, toiling um, for education or wisdom or changing the world. We're, we're giving ourselves to all these things and hoping that in the end we make a profit, not in, a, in, the, in the traditional marketplace, but just that we, we come out with something at the end of the day. And the preacher examines all of these ways of toiling the world, and his conclusion at the end is hevel, hevel. Smoke, mist, it's temporary. They're things that we can enjoy for a time, but they're things that ultimately, at the end, are turned to dust, and we have to release them. Death nullifies. Death cancels out. And because of that, it leads to the second piece, that death is a great equalizer. So death is certain, death is unpredictable, death nullifies, but death equalizes. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. We have no advantage over the beasts. Over the, the mosquito or the bird or the ladybug, we all die. In this sense, death is utterly democratic. It makes no distinctions between species and it makes no distinctions between persons or races or economic statuses or cultures. It is the same for all, since all the same event happens to the righteous or to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to those who sacrifice, to those who don't sacrifice, as good 
as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is he who, and he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Regardless of how pious you are, how righteous or how wealthy or how smart, it all happens to us the same death. And for the preacher, the teacher, he, this is fundamentally uh, an evil thing. It is an unjust thing. What's the point of living a wise life? What's the point of living righteously at, at the end of the day where we all go back to zero? We're all returned to dust. And yet the preacher will say that it is still better to live wisely than it is to live foolishly. Still better to live righteously than to live wicked. Living life backwards is to internalize the truth of dying into your living. To live life backwards is to internalize the truth of your dying into your living. But how exactly does that make us wise? How does it help us? The conservative columnist David Brooks offers a helpful distinction about the virtues in life, which I've, you know, talked with you in the past about. But he makes a distinction that I think is a distinction that the preacher, the teacher in Ecclesiastes also uh, makes. He distinguishes between what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. According to Brooks, the resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, brave, honest, faithful, were you capable of deep love? The resume virtues are the, the virtues that fuel our various immortality projects, right? They're the things that make us successful in school, hard work, determination, grit. They're the things that make us successful in business, accomplished, they make us people famous, beautiful, respected, smart, clever, wealthy, powerful. See, these are the resume virtues. But at our funerals, when our families and our friends are gathered around and they're, they're reflecting on our lives and they're trying to find a way to remember us and what to say, what's on our resumes and the virtues that got us our resumes is very low in their list of things that they're reflecting upon. The businesses that we built, the money we made, the adventures we had, the books we wrote, these are not the kind of inheritance that um, people at funerals are really wanting to think about. What matters is what Brooks calls the eulogy virtues. You might call them our moral inheritance. And it's questions like this, did we love? Did we forgive? Were we kind? Were we good? Did we live with honesty and integrity? Were we available? Devoted husbands and mothers, fathers, friends? As Christians, did we walk with the Lord in our life? Did we love the people God put in our lives? Did we love his church? Did we seek his kingdom? Or did we seek our kingdom? See, in the face of death, the teacher 
he says to us, enjoy life. Enjoy the life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion. And in your toil, at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you are going. See, what's interesting about his reflection there is he draws attention to two things. Um, relationships and, and work. And he, when he says, enjoy the, wife, the, the, the love of your wife, don't limit that just to those who are married. But he's like, who are the people that God has put in your life? The loves, the friendships, the community, your children, your spouse, your parents. Love them. Enjoy them. What is the work that God has given you? Do it with all your heart. Give yourself to it. But, but, realize. Realize that someday they will, it will all be taken away. Death will come in and sweep it away. It will turn to dust. So enjoy it while you have it. Don't expect more from it, from what it than what it can give to you. See, there's great benefit. There's great benefit in reflecting on our death. Death has a way of focusing our attention on the things that matter. It helps us to distinguish those things that are trivial and those things that are not trivial. It teaches us how to adjust our expectations and properly to what it means to just enjoy life for what it is right in front of us. However, the idea that death is something that we could make our peace with ultimately, that we could be cool with and chill with, yeah, I'm going to die, that's all right. That's not the preacher's point of view. One of the things that he recognizes about death is that it is a bitter reality. Death is a bitter reality. Death means that life will be an experience that always has a sense of radical incompleteness. That life will always have this taste, this bitter taste, this insatisfying uh, aspect to it. Death always disrupts. There's very clearly a sense in which it's not the way things are meant to be. Death is bitter. Now, reflection on death has always been a central part of, um, in the Western tradition of philosophy, reflection on death has been a big part of what philosophers philosophize about. The ancient Roman philosopher Cicero said, to philosophize is nothing other than to, for a man to prepare himself to die. To philosophize is nothing other than for a man to, to prepare himself to die. This is a sentiment that is broadly shared in ancient world of philosophy that runs all the way up to the 20th century. Philosophers are always reflecting on death, and in this sense, the teacher stands in this tradition as a philosopher of death. But so does Jesus. Jesus, as well, is a philosopher of death. He philosophizes on the meaning of death, and... His reflections and philosophy of death is actually more radical than all that went before him. It's more radical, but at the same time, it's more hopeful and more joyful. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus' call to discipleship is a call to live life backwards. However, it is not to live one's life backwards from one's own death, but to live life backwards from his death. See, what makes Jesus' philosophy of death so different from all the rest is that when he speaks about death, he does not speak as one simply who has observed it happening around him in the world, outside of him, but he as one who has undergone the experience of death itself. He is the only one, as a philosopher, who has experienced death and lived to tell about it. Jesus is the kind of philosopher in which his teachings cannot be separated from his person and his life. His words are based upon his own experience of death. And when Jesus calls us to pick up our crosses and to follow him, it's not him saying, listen, don't worry about death. It's not that bad. I did it. You'll be okay. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you can do it. Do like I did. When he says, pick up your cross and follow me, it can only be because he has gone ahead of us and in his person he has overcome death. He experienced a sting of death, a sting in which we would never have recovered. Jesus' philosophy of death is unlike others because it calls us not simply to an imitation of his life, but a participation in his life. The Christian life is not what would Jesus do, but it is what did Jesus do on my behalf. It's not simply an imitation, it is a participation. As a resurrected one, he is the first fruits from the dead. The hope and the promise we have in the face of death is not something that we generate from within ourselves as we look and as we try to grow courage. Hope in the face of death is a posture that we come by only as we look to him, only as we find our lives in his do we have the hope of everlasting life. The Apostle Paul um, reflected on this great truth at the end of his book on the Corinthians. And he writes of it, he says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks that we have victory in Jesus to face death, that he has faced death, and that because we are in him, Lord, we will be able to rejoice over death and sin and the law. Lord, all of us, in different kinds of ways, struggle with fear of death. Even the Lord himself, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, knew as a human being what it was like to be afraid 
to be afraid of death. And so, Lord, we know that faith in you is not incompatible with fear of our own, um, of our own deaths, but we, we do know that the hope in us is greater than the fear. So, Lord, let us find ourselves in that hope and let us find ourselves more deeply into the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.